the Park Ridge Men's Prayer Breakfast. Through his practice of medicine and medical missionary experiences, Greg has lived that life of service to others and is excited to share it with us today. I'm proud and humbled to introduce Dr. Greg Kirshner. So good morning. Thank you very much. It really is a great, great privilege to share a part of my life this morning with you, with other men. And in the context of breakfast, in the context of prayer. And I want to thank you in particular for the great opportunity I have now to engage in something that I think I was created to do, to be an encourager. As uh, I'm a father of four adult children and a husband of an amazing cancer surgeon, in my professional role as a family doctor, and now as a teacher of family doctors, that's what I get to do, to be an encourager. So I considered what I wanted to share this morning with guys nearing the end of a long winter, and I thought maybe encouragement would be the best thing. Uh, so I'm going to do what I was created to do. I'm going to share with you what's been encouraging me, what's been encouraging me over a long period of time. Now, um, as I do that, uh, I'd like to, uh, as a teacher, hope that you, some of this would stick, you know, that some of this would be remembered. Brain researchers say that adults listening to a presentation three days later will remember about 10%. If other senses are brought into play, like taste and smell and vision, and we toss in some repetition, we can raise that, probably around 65% recall, maybe 80% recall. So take one more smell of your coffee and get ready to listen. I'll paint a few visual pictures and uh, we'll do a little repetition along the way. First, a bit about encouragement. I don't know how you think of it. I think of it as the act of putting courage in. In our culture, encouragement then has come to mean uh, really helping folks see what they're capable of, of affirming that they can keep it up, that they can do more, that they can, that they can go on. You know, we love to say things like, way to go, you can do it. You can get up for a 7.30 a.m. prayer breakfast on a Saturday. Way to go. Well, when we moved our family to Nigeria in 1995, uh, we all had an opportunity to learn a little bit more about this term encouragement. One Sunday morning, sitting in a packed congregation, they love to pack you very close to the front and keep packing in, uh, we had listened to the special music, which goes on for quite a while in an African context. The lay worship leader then stood up and he addressed the congregation this way, choir, this morning, you did not choose a good song. <laughs> and then the women's fellowship, you came up and, well, you are not prepared. Finally, I thought the church band, you would save the day. But you too, you are not serious. Listen, this is for God. Next week, we will all do better. Wow. I mean, can you imagine that in your Sunday morning worship? <laughs> Tell me who would be there next week. <laughs> So after the church service was over, I went up to one of my good Nigerian friends and I said, what was that? So that was encouragement. <laughs> and you know, he's right. You know, there are several definitions. And certainly part of encouragement is to make someone more determined, to make them more likely to do something. This is spoken about in our scripture. The writer of the book of Hebrews suggests in chapter 10 
I'm going to paraphrase this. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, let us draw near to God, let us hold to hope, and let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching. Isn't that a great message? Let us spur one another on toward love and good deeds. I think that's why you paid money this morning. I think that's why you showed up this morning. I think you wanted to come here and encourage one another, to spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Now, in our Nigerian church, they would always do this, almost every, uh, every uh, message, every sermon. As they would share things, they would do this, turn to one another and say this. We'd feel like little kids, okay, you know. Why do I have to do that? So, you know why? It's a great memory jog. So you have to do this with me. So turn to the guy next to you and say, let us spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Now, listen, when you think of that word spur, what do you think about when you think of the word spur? A horse, right? And a kick, right? So this would work better if you said, let us spur one another on toward love and good deeds. So if you want to, now don't kick the guy next to you, but you get the idea. You do a little hand and a little arm motion, right? So I told you, I want you to remember this. So let us spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Now, you're probably wondering how we ended up in that Nigerian church. So here's the backstory. I grew up in northeast Pennsylvania, which is not in northeast Pennsylvania. Okay, northeast Pennsylvania is a small farm town in northwest Pennsylvania, and it's close to Erie. And I was enjoying hearing about the young men this morning, the Ramblers and uh, uh, Hawks, and, uh, well, I was a northeast grape picker. Uh, that doesn't mean when I went out and actually picked grapes were an area known for its massive grape production. But our high school mascot were the grape pickers. And uh, when I was on the swim team, we ran, we swam against the cranberry berries. It was a, truly a, a titan contest of the pickers against the berries. Um, a distant relative of mine actually invented the uh, mechanical grape picker, as uh, half of my family were farmers, and the other half were laborers. I grew up pumping gas. And um, I... Uh, had no idea about what would really happen with college. No one in our family had ever graduated from college. But I knew I was going. And the reason I knew I was going was because I was encouraged. I was raised by a very hardworking Catholic father who provided for us through that gas station. A very loving, caring Presbyterian mother. And I was that firstborn goody-goody son who got all the opportunities they could do within their means. I know for a fact now that my parents prayed on their knees for us as we were growing up, for our future, and for our future spouses. And through a series of circumstances that goes far beyond coincidence, I would end up at college. I would end up at Northwestern University, my first choice. In fact, the only school I applied to. Can you imagine that now, guys, only applying to Northwestern? <laughs> Let me stop there for a moment and talk a little bit about prayer. What's your attitude toward prayer? What's your practice of prayer? What is it like to be prayed for? What is it like to hold up those closest around you and to pray for them? To take the very details of our lives and to place them in the hands of our loving Father, our Abba. And then to know that our prayers are heard, that they are acted on. Now I've been thinking about this from God's perspective. And here's the word picture. Two of your children have just come up to you. They're holding hands. 
and they get down on their knees in front of you. And they say something like this. They say, hey, Dad, you're great. We love you. We're ready to do what you teach us to do, even if we don't understand it all yet. We like depending on you. In fact, we need to depend on you. And there's some things that we need today. How would you answer, Dad? Hmm? How would you answer? Well, God was answering the prayers of my parents more than they could imagine. And I was on my own exploration of faith and prayer, a great deepening, in fact, in my prayer life in my late teens and early college years. I was coupled with an experience of intimate faith community, uh, a community where I saw faith really being late, um, lived out, and a very serious personal exploration of the concept of grace. I would come to see the finished and complete work of Jesus as really something that expressed great love for me, great love for me personally. I began to recognize that I was the blessed recipient of abundant grace, overwhelming grace. And I felt tremendous gratitude, the gratitude that's never left. I can see some of you nodding your heads, abundant grace. And then that sense of obligation that began to rise, not because God was demanding that so much, but it was the logical response. I, I had to respond in some way. To paraphrase Jesus uh, from Luke's Gospel, and by the way, Luke, of course, would be my favorite Gospel. Right? <laughs> yes, Dr. Luke. To paraphrase Jesus, to whom much has been given, much is required. And this began to seek deep, deep in me. I had come out of my naive small town upbringing and I was now learning more about just what the world was like. About great pain and sorrow and decay and atrocities and sin and something was demanded. I'd been given so much. A world that God loves so much he would send his son into it and then that son would send us out. So guys, we've got to repeat this. To whom much has been given, much is required. Now, the hand motion I want to do for this one, you did the kick before. Well, somebody did the kick. The hand motion for this one, I was thinking about, what is that? So, to whom much has been given? You want to receive something? It's kind of like this. Isn't that interesting? That's also our attitude of prayer, right? So, so you might do this. To whom much has been given? Much is required. Why don't you turn to the guy next to you? To whom much has been given? Much is required. Okay? And in case you forgot, let us spur one another on toward love and good deeds. turned out, um, similar attitudes were also taking root in the heart of a young, beautiful, and very caring pre-medical student named Carolyn. I met Carolyn through uh, volunteer work in a psychiatric hospital while we were in college. And although we had become good friends over time, frankly, I'd given up on trying to date her. In fact, I remember praying about all this and just giving it over to God and saying, I, I give up. One week later, December 3rd, 1976, we had our first real date. And I still celebrate it every year. <laughs> it was a remarkable set of coincidences that were far beyond coincidence. We dated through the rest of college. We ended up in medical schools in different states. I had been rejected by several, accepted at a few. And then beyond coincidence again, I was accepted at my number one choice, Duke University. I went into playing basketball there, outside in the outside courts. <laughs> <laughs> You know that uh, my children still think I play basketball. I never learned that. But me, gas station boy, attending my number one choice of med school and my number one choice of college. It was all grace. 
We were apart during med school, and uh, during that time, God did a really amazing thing. He brought a missionary kid, medical student, in contact with my future wife, Carolyn. Carolyn saw that through this young woman and through her family that they were sacrificially loving Jesus and they were meeting human needs of the poor and Bolivian farmers. And while hearing about them and watching this family and studying the human body and creation, Carolyn was really moved to really trust Jesus fully too. It happened while we were apart. It didn't happen by philosophic or logical arguments, even if I had tried some on Carolyn. I was thankful now for that time apart. You know, face it, the most powerful evidence of the reality of the triune God is watching God do things that only God can do. Things like creation. Things like transforming lives. Have you uh, seen some evidence of creation lately? Have you watched some lives being transformed? Have you looked for things that only God can do? Have you asked Him to do them? So while we were apart, um, Carolyn was growing in her faith, and then she would come to invite me to uh, the Urbana Missions Conference. Urbana, Illinois, has been the site, and then they've had it some in St. Louis of a, every two or three year event where thousands and thousands of college students are invited to come and explore how they might serve, and particularly how they might serve in any mission capacity. And at that event, we were moved to stand up and publicly declare at least in front of one another, that I'm willing to do medical missions. We had no idea what that meant. We didn't know the details. But after that happened, I knew that we could get married. I knew that we shared purpose and that we've been greatly blessed to meet one another. The most exciting moments of my life have occurred around moments of surrender. The surrender of the will, the giving over to God, it's so liberating and it's pretty scary. Uh, we married in 1981, and at the time I couldn't see what the Holy Spirit was arranging for our future. Um, I was very in love with Carolyn, uh, but I couldn't see just how amazing, how hard-working, how compassionate, how loyal she would turn out to be, and just how right this matchup would be. And I want to thank my father-in-law, who's here, and my mother-in-law for raising this loving and caring and generous woman. I want to give even more thanks to our Heavenly Father for gifting her for loving her enough to send Jesus to die for her and the forgiving her of me, to whom much has been given, much is required. Oh, we better do that again. You almost forgot. <coughs> to whom much has been given, much is required. And let us spur one another on toward love and good deeds. So after marrying, I moved up here to Chicago again, uh, and it came time to apply for residency. Uh, now, some of you who are in the medical field know this, but the rest may not know that, you know, there's this crazy thing called the match where all the students apply, they visit the various residencies, they put their names in the computer, the folks on the other end, which is what I do now, uh, do the same thing, and then on one magical day that happens to be this next week, all those students find out where they're going. All of us at Duke believe we get our first, second, or maybe our third choice. Um, we waited, we waited, and I got the great news. I had gotten my... Seventh choice. <laughs> Seventh choice. Oh my goodness. Compromise. Compromise. What our marriage would need to do. In order for us to be training in our respective fields, we had had to compromise. And I would have to suffer the indignity of going to my seventh choice. And that seventh choice was at 
Lutheran General Hospital in Park Ridge, Illinois. <laughs> now, when that was announced, another friend, I remember this this morning, said, isn't that some kind of country club place? <laughs> so, it was a fantastic fit for me. I could not see that yet. Um, over the years, we've tried to leave Park Ridge more than once. God keeps keeping us here. Um, as our story goes on, those of uh, you who know that he's kept us so much here, our, our house is in the backyard of Lutheran General. <laughs> but at that time, we began our internship and our residency, and it was during that time we started our mission work. We did our first two-week project back in 1985. We visited the Dominican Republic, and uh, this was with a wife who hates bugs and dirt. You know, she grew up in Barrington, and this just was like camping. Okay. Uh, and honestly, that project was tough. Uh, the poverty was overwhelming, the medical need was overwhelming, the fatigue was overwhelming, and we knew we were not up to it, not in our own strength. We came back, sat exhausted at JFK Airport, and cried about whether we could ever do this again. And within months, we felt our heart being moved that we were supposed to do it again. To whom much has been given, much is required, and we were healthy enough to do this, and why wouldn't we go again? And this just kept up. Over the nine years, as we, next nine years, as we differentiated professionally, I would become a family physician and then a teacher of family physicians. Karen would become a gynecologist and then a cancer surgeon for women's cancers. Uh, our children began to arrive. Uh, a girl, and then a girl, and then a girl, <laughs> and then a boy. But during that time, we kept doing short mission trips, although Carolyn swore she would never go when she was pregnant. <laughs> We kept asking after each of these episodes of going on a project of whether we were supposed to go for a longer period of time. Were we really being called to deploy our professional skills in a different way? Were we being called to do something a little bit more long-term? Something where we would teach and use specialized surgery. We would talk about this with other professionals and they would think that we were crazy. That we, they didn't really seem to understand. And then we ran into some other folks, professionals, who really did understand. In fact, really began to challenge us. One couple in particular, we kept running into them at various meetings. I, I met them in restaurants in Guatemala. I met them in restaurants in the U.S. I just keep running into the same couple. And they said to us one time, many are willing to go, but few are planning to go. Planning to go. That's the next phrase I want to leave you with this morning. Many are willing to go. Few are planning to go. Plan to go. Now, I don't know what you do for this one. I thought maybe probably, for me, it's my smartphone. That's where all my planning goes on. So, you know, I could, at the risk of this, take out my smartphone and say, many are willing to go, few are planning to go, but plan to go. Okay. You've got to at least say it to the guy next to you. Many are willing to go. Few are planning to go. Plan to go. To whom much has been given, much is required. And let us spur one another on toward love and good deeds. In 1993, after several years of doing these short projects, I decided to explore this further. I would go on a mission trip in Africa. And I got the wrong guy on the phone to set this up. I thought I was heading off to East Africa to a project in Rwanda. And uh, I got a surgeon on the phone who said, no, I'm not in charge of that. And you don't want to go there. There's some kind of trouble going on there. But I need someone to come to Nigeria. I need a family physician to come and go to one hospital, and then you can go visit another hospital and explore what God's trying to teach you about this. But I really need a family physician to come. And so with uh, this amazing set of circumstances again, I ended up visiting Nigeria in November of 1993. 
Nigeria is an amazing country, and we won't talk too much about it this morning. <laughs> it goes beyond my description. Densely populated, uh, you know, 160 million. One in five Africans is a Nigerian. Um, it's outgoing, it's hospitable, it's gregarious, and it's risky. And you know it from emails. <laughs> Scam emails, probably. Yeah. Unfortunately, they should be known for many, many other things besides that. While I was there, there was a coup. And I saw the country still went on. A lot of good work was still going on. But the most amazing thing was I got to visit this small mission hospital up in Jos, up in north-central Nigeria. And when I arrived there, I found that our job description was there. They were looking for a family physician to come and teach family physicians. They were looking for a gynecologist to come and do specialized surgery on women who have been injured in childbirth, um, who have a condition called vesicovaginal fistula. It's a condition where, because of damage during the birth process out in the bush, they leak urine, and they do that for the rest of their lives. They become social outcasts. And there was a program to do surgery for free for several hundred women a year, and they needed another surgeon to come and do this specialized surgery. The children could school in a nearby international mission school. The work was in English. Our job description was there. I came back home and I told Carolyn and I said, our job description's there and we knew immediately that's where we were supposed to go. We thought we might go for one or two years. We realized that we wanted to learn language and culture. We thought, okay, maybe we should go for four. Our son was born right around this time and we told our parents that we were going to take our four, their four, grandchildren away to Nigeria. Within a very short time, resources poured in from everywhere. And on one Sunday morning, kneeling in front of church, our knees shaking, we were ready to leave with 51 boxes of supplies and four small children, two in strollers. Hundreds would pray for us, and over the following years, hundreds more. And our mission agency's motto, <laughs> the motto for SIM, that's our mission agency, is by prayer. We stopped our practices here in Park Ridge. We told others we looked crazy. We looked reckless. How could you take your kids? It's one thing for you to decide. It's quite another thing to take your children and commit them to this. One of my favorite expressions was a gentleman at church who said, you know, we're behind you. Far, far behind you. <laughs> I want to make it clear that Carol and I are not risk takers. Really aren't. And it's not because we're holier than anybody else. It's because we're loved. It's because we're loved. Our favorite chapter at this time of our life was from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And I'd encourage you sometime to take a look at that chapter. Um, it's a chapter where part of it, Paul is explaining his own foolish behavior. And he uses this expression, for the love of Christ compels us. Or in the King James, for the love of Christ constraineth us. Or the love of Christ forces us. You think about that phrase for a minute. The love of Christ compels us. Not in some magical, overpowering way. Our God doesn't do that. He gives us free will. He gives us choice. The love of Christ compels us because we have to respond. Maybe this will be the last phrase we'll repeat this one. For the love of Christ compels us. I, for that one, I, I, I think I've got a hand over my heart. For the love of Christ compels us. Can you do that one? For the love of Christ. Let's remember the others. Many are willing to go. Few are planning to go. Planning to go. To whom much has been given, much is required.
And finally, let us spur one another on towards loving with you. You know, it's hard to encapsulate what happened in Nigeria for our family. I remember today, Carolyn said those would be the best years of our family life. Uh, we would end up spending seven years there uh, instead of one or two. And now we've continued going back and forth since 2004, spending anywhere from two weeks to five months there, deepening relationships, having opportunities for teaching, and doing surgery. Um, it's remarkable from 1993 till now. I get to teach Nigerian Christian family doctors who are eager to learn, who will go out and become future leaders. My last trip there, I think I spoke 23 times in 12 days. I, I spoke with graduates of our program working in five hospitals. And for Carolyn, working with women whose lives have been taken away by childbirth injuries, leaving them with this devastating condition of EVF, you know, we've lived among tremendous poverty. We've lived among tremendous spirituality. We've served in the midst of ethnic and religious conflict. We've been next to missionaries who we saw lay down their lives for their faith. We've seen great responses to prayer. We've seen miracles. Yes, miracles. I want to paint two images of that time for you that kind of sum this part up. Every Tuesday morning in our clinic at um, uh, Evangel Hospital, uh, the women who have this fistula problem, this medical condition, gather in the clinic for their appointments that day with the doctors. Some of those women have been in the hospital for several weeks. If they've had their surgery and now they've recovered. And during that recovery time, chaplains visit with them every day and encourage them. They learn a new economic skill so that when they go back to their village, they have something they can do as they get their lives back. Others are new patients. Those new patients, on average, have lived with this condition for five years already. Um, 25% of them were probably around the age of 14 when they were afflicted with this. They gather, too, these new ones coming in looking for hope. And then there are others who are there somewhere else in this journey. And during that time of gathering, uh, they'll have uh, rice for breakfast. Uh, they will um, do a, a little bit of singing and some choruses and some songs. And at some point, the women who are going home in what they call a freedom ceremony stand up and give their testimony about what's happened. They give them a new set of clothes, and then the women dance, and they start their day, and the woman goes home to her village. And I get to watch my wife from Barrington dancing with some of the poorest women in the world who just got their lives back. That's got to work. And for me, I'll give you an image. 2007, I was in the nation's capital, the nation of Nigeria, in the city of Abuja. And I was in front of an auditorium. Uh, there were two senators seated in the front row from the Health Committee of the Federal Republic of Nigeria. The room was filled with Nigerian family doctors, some of whom I had helped train. As I looked around the room, I realized that I was having this incredible privilege of addressing them on the topic of the challenges facing primary care in Nigeria and what they should do about it. And I got to speak about ethics and integrity. Me, gas station boy, telling them my perspective on health. All Grace. Um, you know, two days ago, uh, I think the Pickwick showed Mr. Smith goes to Washington. That was Mr. Smith. I didn't plan this. This is beyond my ability to plan. That was a Frank, Frank Capra movie. There's another Frank Capra movie that you know. It's a Wonderful Life. Right? It's a Wonderful Life. I'm a sucker for this happy. <laughs> because I've been the recipient of it. I've had a wonderful life. Abundant. 
But story's not done. On this side of the ocean, I get to train future family leaders, future family physician leaders, future, you know, uh, folks that are really needed by our country right now uh, when we talk about health care reform. I get to do that at Advocate Lutheran General, which has been so good to me. Carolyn gets to care for women with cancer at such a vulnerable point in their lives. She's committed to prayer. She prays with almost every patient in that context over at North Shore. And then our kids are trying to find their way in the world. And some are starting to scatter themselves. We have one living overseas right now. And as a couple, we are praying more and more about more and more things. We're praying for our parents. We're praying about tough stuff here. So what have I learned? Well, what I've shared with you. All of this applies to our work and life here. These lessons are not really so much about where to go. They're about how to go, who to go for, and whose name we go. I need to apply this. What is the love of Christ compelling me to do now? Am I planning to go? Am I making movement? Um, am I still in touch with gratitude about how much I've been given? And am I encouraging others and love and good deeds? Why don't you do that set of phrases one more time for me? This time with the actions, so that you remember it. For the love of Christ compels us. Many are willing to go. Few are planning to go plan to go. And to whom much has been given, much is required. And finally, let us spur one another on toward love. Please join me in prayer. Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you as men this morning for protecting this time really for protecting this time for 49 years. We thank you that in you there is no coincidence. There is an arrangement of an amazing set of circumstances. I thank you for the great privilege of showing you off through the circumstances of our lives that you have blessed. We thank you for your love. We thank you that you do hear our prayers as Abba, Father, that you are available to us. We thank you for the finished work of Christ. We thank you for abundant grace poured out. We thank you for the sense of empowerment that we can have because we know that our prayers are heard and answered by you. And Lord, now as we've shared these thoughts together, we acknowledge that it is the love of Christ which compels, which compels us. Lord, help us to be in touch with that love today. We thank you that it is in your providence that you send us out. And we want to be willing to go, but more than that, we want to be planning. We, want, we know we need movement. But wherever we are today, we need movement. We need to be planning. And we acknowledge as we look around to one another that much indeed has been given to us here. And we know that there is a response. Much is required. And so, Lord, we would pray, even as we finish this time together, that we indeed could be a community that encourages one another, that prompts one another in love and good deeds. 
And at the end of the day, we will give you the glory, for you will be the one that has done it. Thank you that you accept our prayer, for we've prayed in the strong name of Christ. Amen. Amen. Amen.